Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Dharma Toolkit Daily Podcast with me, Chandra Dasa. The team are off, hopefully tuning in, listening with popcorn or whatever it is they do when they listen to this podcast. I'm delighted to welcome you to another episode. We're in the middle of the week and the sun is shining where I live. It's a very beautiful spring day. I'm sure many of you are having the same experience of spring starting to come in, the blossoms, the warmer weather. And in a week where we're studying the worldly winds that blow through everybody's lives, it seems particularly appropriate to notice the spring breezes and the change that it brings. I hope you're all doing very well wherever you are. It's been amazing to hear all the voices day after day after day, different experience, sometimes vastly different experience of the shutdown, the lockdown, whatever it is we're in together as human beings. And today I thought we'd have a different kind of conversation, more to do with, in a way, what does an international community do once the dust starts to settle on a big piece of strangeness like this and everybody's beginning to find their feet a little bit, uh, everybody's beginning to kind of swap stories, swap new wisdom about the best ways to respond. In our community, globally, we're lucky enough in a way to be held together by a network of institutions that work quite well together all through the year, but in a way are particularly suited to crises like this. And one of the big areas that we're going to be talking about together is money. Just the huge financial impact, the economic burden that something like a pandemic places on institutions. Everything from your local Buddhist centre to, in a way, pan-community initiatives like working with young Buddhists or communication platforms like the one you're listening to. And so we've got two marvellous guests who are particularly marvellous because they came in at quite short notice and stepped in to talk about, I suppose, all things money, all things financial. They're both former investment bankers, which is probably not something you say every day when you're talking about Buddhists, but we're very lucky to have them in our particular community because they're already helping Buddhist centres around the world start to model financially for what's happening, and particularly also to look at the future and the opportunities that are there, the resource that can be accessed through positive evocations of money and what money can do to change people's lives. So I'd like to welcome first... My old friend, good friend, bit of a stalwart of this podcast over the years, now and again, he pops up, Amalavadra from the Future Dharma organisation. Hello, Chandra Dasa. Lovely to be here. You're looking resplendent. Uh, well, thank you. <laughs> now, are you feeling better? Because you've been a bit under the weather, haven't you? Well, I have had this dreaded, this coronavirus. I live in a community with four other guys. All of us have had it, except for one. My Chanara has somehow fought it off. My brother's had it. My partner's had it. So I know it quite well. And I tell you, it's a three-week bug. And I mean, I'm fortunate enough to have been able to fight it off, I think. But it's been quite an interesting few weeks. I'm sure we'll hear a little bit more later about how that kind of experience dovetails with your work, Amalavadra. How are you doing more generally? How are your family? What's it been like for you in a relatively new community in South London? I've been here six months. The community's been going one year. So there's already a really good rapport between us, good friendships. And we meditate together every day. You know, there's a lot of supports there to positive emotion. And we've also very much got a task to engage in, a shared task, because we also are part of the Brixton Buddhist community. Brixton's an area of South London. And we were just part of the team of people running Brixton activities. And now that we're in lockdown, we're now running the centre effectively from our community from this Dana Prasada community. So we've been doing YouTube live streams and, of course, Zoom study groups and all sorts of stuff. 
that I've never done before. And it's been, it's been kind of fun. I've, I've enjoyed doing that. It's been a challenge. And it's quite fun. I say we're reaching loads more people than we normally would. We had 250 people so far watch our Saturday morning class, which was me interviewing Vadratara. So we'd never get 250 people in one of our classes in South London. So it's actually been kind of exciting in a strange kind of way. More what I have to watch is that I don't get carried away with that. I feel very fortunate. I was very well looked after when I was in bed with this illness. I was out of action for about a week. And, you know, I had three meals a day made for me. And, you know, that's a really rare privilege. So, you know, I was really very grateful to be living here at this time. You asked about my family as well. Well, my brother and my partner, we visited them for my dad's 80th birthday just about four weeks ago. So I was worried, of course, that we would have passed it on to them, but they seem in good health too. So I'm glad to say so far they, they seem unaffected. You mentioned the name of your community. Do you want to give us a, a little translation of that? What's the name of your community and what does it mean? So I live in a community called Dana Prasada. And Dana Prasada is a name that was given to us by the Brixton Buddhist Centre president, who's Paramabandhu. He gave us the name and it means Palace of Generosity. It is a bit of a palace, this community. In fact, one or two people have said, this can't be a Buddhist community, it's too nice. But it definitely is a Buddhist community, but it is rather lovely. And Dana, yeah, I mean, hopefully there's plenty of generosity here. It's the home for Future Dharma Fund. It's where we basically run our fundraising from as well. So generosity is pretty important to that. I have seen pictures of your community. It looks quite palatial, <laughs> lovely. So I'm looking forward to coming and visiting when this is all finally over. And of course, our other guest today also has the word Dana in her name. So it'd be interesting to hear what your name means too. Dana Utah from the London Buddhist Centre. Yeah, it's really, really nice to be here. You asked a little bit about what my name means. And the Dana bit means generosity, it means giving. And the Utah bit's a little bit more unusual. Utah means something like bonded with, comprised of. So that's what it means. She's bonded with generosity. And how are you doing? How is, how is life in London amidst all the crazy? Yeah, so I live in London, I suppose in what could be described as inner city London, quite close to the London Buddha Centre in East London. It's a very, very mixed area. The borough that we're part of probably has had the highest inequality in terms of income. You know, so areas that are very, very poor and deprived and also it's the same borough that has Canary Wharf, which is one of the main financial districts in London. And in London, we've been in lockdown pretty much for at least two weeks, possibly more. Sometimes, you know, I don't know about you, Chandra Dasa, but the days just run into each other. It's hard to know which day it is today in a way. I saw a thing on Twitter this morning where a local news station has started telling people what day it is before they do the weather. It's like, today is Tuesday. <laughs> they put it up as a giant calendar thing. It's like, oh, well. And how are your family and friends doing? Is everybody around you safe and well? Yeah, so most of my family is in Malaysia and also around the world. Um, everyone's fine. I don't think anyone's been affected by the virus yet, although it's quite hard to tell because, you know, you can't have the virus and be asymptomatic. My friends are well, most of them. I mean, I was thinking a bit about Amalogadra over the last couple of weeks and also one of my friends, Jane, from the Buddhist Centre has been hospitalised and we've heard recently that she's stable, so very, very ill. So I've been a bit preoccupied thinking about people who are unwell as well. As somebody who's working online quite a lot at the moment, I've actually watched both of you on your events through on the TV, Brixton, the LBC. What's that been like for you, Dana Utah, just, you know, having to convert a lot of your approach to teaching to a virtual context? That's 
that's a really interesting question. I think it's very, very different teaching a class live to teaching basically to a camera. And if you're lucky, one person in the room. It's a very, very different thing. I think in a real life situation, you actually get quite a lot of feedback from the room. You can tell whether people are listening. You can tell whether people are with you or if they're bored or they're particularly interested. One does get quite a lot of energy from the audience, I would say. So teaching to a camera, I think it does take a bit more energy from the teacher. I think I spend quite a lot of time whilst I'm teaching imagining people on the other side of a laptop. So in a certain sort of way, it does ask a different kind of skill from me. Yeah, yeah. but I, I do really enjoy it. It's a different format in a way. I think I somehow, maybe because it's new and I'm still getting used to it, I do a lot more prep for the online classes and I might not redo. It shows you're both excellent in front of a camera. I'm sort of aware that for each of you, you're coming at it from a different angle. The Camel Avenger, your main job is not to be teaching for the Brixton Buddhist Centre. You're doing that as something that's just part of your wider sense of practice. Danny, are you actually employed at the London Buddhist Centre as a teacher or is that something you're also doing on the side as it were? Yeah, so I am employed as a yoga teacher there. I do quite a lot of Dharma teaching as well. I think it's sometimes quite difficult for us to sort of delineate between, you know, what we consider work and what we consider, I don't know, pleasure or play. I think how I tend to think about it is that I'm just trying to live a full Dharma life, a full Buddhist life, a full sort of spiritual life, a life of practice. And I'm fortunate enough to be supported by the London Buddhist Centre to do that. That's a great answer in terms of just vocational living and the way you're just leading the Dharma life. And the boundary between play and work is often something that just blurs very easily. People just give so open-heartedly and so open-handedly. And speaking of giving, one of the other things that you've both been doing for Truratna in the last couple of weeks is helping people look at money which I suppose is one of the sides of this that most people are dimly aware of. They're certainly aware of it in terms of their own personal finances, but when it comes to big institutions, maybe people have had an email from their local Buddhist centre, you know, asking for support, that kind of thing. But it seems to me from the documents that I've been looking at that are connected with the work you've been doing, you're holding quite a big vision for how money happens during a time like this and what the opportunities and the problems are. Do you want to say a little bit, Amal Vadra, about what you've been involved with immediately? Yes, well, I suppose I'm very aware that most true Ratna Buddhist centres, you know, as of the shutdown, which in the UK was three weeks ago, in other countries, not far off that, basically lost almost all their income. No more room hires, no more yoga classes, no more dana bowl in the tea break, no more retreats and retreat fees. Retreats are often an income source for centres. Suddenly all that just stopped overnight. But of course, all the bills continued, the mortgage, the team, financial support and so forth. So the only income that centres are left with after all that is the money that's given every month by people who come to their Buddhist centres. Or even some of that is lost because, of course, some people are losing their jobs and so having to cut back on any non-essential costs. So that was evident immediately. And of course, not just Buddhist centres suffer from that. Many institutions do. But to focus on the true out of Buddhist centres for now. Dani Utah got in touch with me very quickly. She sent me an email saying, as it happened, we'd been working together. Well, she'd been doing most of the work on behalf of what's called the Tree Ratna Money Group, looking at centres' finances. What was their income and expenditure situation? How was their balance sheet looking? She'd already been doing that work with a, a friend of ours called Johan de Mulde as well, who's at the London Buddhist Centre. And she said, you know, I've been looking at the centre finances and some of them are in quite a precarious situation here. You know, if they look at their cash balances versus their outgoings, some centres, you know, are in danger here of going under if this goes on for several months. 
So I really appreciate that email from Donny Tar, who's an old friend, by the way. We met years ago on a retreat when she was quite new to the Dharma. And I thought, actually, she's right. So we got a couple of things going. I mean, one thing immediately that we got going, which she might say more about in a minute, is a kind of emergency financial advice program, which she's been very active in with Johan. Anyway, I'll leave her to talk about that. But the other thing I realized that would be needed would be helping centers fundraise at this time. They obviously need more regular donors to cover all that shortfall that I've just described. So we very quickly, I mean, I've never made a hiring decision so quickly, decided to hire an order member called Kusala Davy, who's a very experienced fundraiser and trainer from Caranon Trust. I mean, we, I got an email from her saying, I'm looking for work and we'd hired her within half an hour. I've never moved that fast. <laughs> I mean, I've been wanting her to work with us for years and then here is our chance. So we've hired her explicitly to support Tree Ratner Centres, wherever they are in the world, to make up the shortfall to fundraise. Daniel Tart will talk a minute, I'm sure, about cost savings and other things. But this was like, how do we help? How does Future Dharma help Tree Ratner Centres, wherever they are in the world, to confidently go out to their local sanghas, people who come to their classes and say, we need your help. We need you to, to give monthly to sponsor us so that we can carry on, not just so we survive this crisis, but so that we actually really thrive in it. By thrive, I mean, reach out to more and more people with what, of course, everyone needs, not just Buddhists need, everybody needs help well, with managing their mental and emotional health. Everyone's stuck at home without their usual supports to their mental health and positivity, uh, but also help people thrive in the sense of the unique thing that we can offer is really help people thrive in terms of their perspective on this crisis and actually grow through it. So yeah, we want to help centres to fundraise, to carry on doing that for people, whether they're already in the Sangha, whether they're not involved in the Sangha, but, but just need help. Uh, it's nice to hear from you, Amala Vajra. Actually, when you first approached me about what we're calling the Tree Ratna Money Group, for now, it was a few months ago, and you asked me to help look at all assets and wealth in the movement. I must admit, I was a little bit grudging in taking up the work. There was a part of me was going like, okay, okay. But Avala Vajra, he's like so persuasive, and he's so nice, and I just want to help him. <laughs> he just got some free work out of me. Um, so I was a little bit grudging in agreeing to do this. But actually, that work was very, very timely. I don't think I would have quite have had a perspective on, I suppose, Buddhist centers beyond the one that I'm affiliated with. Yes, despite having been around the movement for more than 10 years, I think I would have been quite sort of parochial in my thinking, just thinking about the situation in London, maybe one or two other centers in London, but really quite small in the way I would have been thinking. But having done that survey of how Buddhist centers are, I don't know, financially run, at least through what is publicly available in terms of information, I felt like I had a broader sense of what the potential pitfalls might be when we're in a crisis situation like this. So it's not just that it's like a health crisis, but because economic activity is down, the centers are closed, lots of activities closed, we're in a kind of economic shock. And I started thinking quite a bit about what will then happen to not just the London Buddhist Center, but Buddhist centers around the UK and these days even thinking a bit wider than that, Europe. And interesting to hear earlier Chandra Dasa talking about Portsmouth, for example. So one of the things that I've been doing is working with a friend of mine who's also a friend of the London Buddhist Center, Johan, who's a very, very experienced, again, an investment banker, financier on 
sort of one-to-one consulting with Buddhist centers about their financial position, where they are, trying to get clear about where they are in terms of finances and how they could potentially come out of the crisis, whether it's through government help or just being able to decide on a strategy, a financial strategy, such as we are going to increase standing orders or we're going to try to ask people to support us more or we need to do some cost-cutting. We might need to put some people on furlough, for example. Yes, thanks for mentioning Portsmouth, Dana, Utah. I, I was chatting to just before we did the setup for this podcast, just saying that our local Buddha Centre, which is here in the US, with a very different stimulus response to the crisis from the US government, and then that's made more complicated by the states all being quite independent from each other. What's available to us as a local Buddha Centre effectively are, are loans. And obviously the calculation with taking a loan is, can you realistically expect to be able to repay it in the future? And that was never part of our business plan for a centre that just opened in January. The challenge for us was we spent our startup money, which was all carefully budgeted within a plan over two years. We spent it all and we got the centre absolutely beautiful. And the week we opened it, it was closed down. So there's obviously the usual thing of us turning to our sangha, to our friends, asking for immediate help with that and also just balancing up like understanding the stimulus package the terms of it trying to work out does it make sense for us to borrow against future income etc etc so the kinds of tools and the kinds of work you guys are doing will be i'm sure helpful even outside of the uk outside of europe but it does demonstrate how quickly people are having to think on their feet i come from scotland our national poet the best they plans of mice and men king after glay as Robert Burns used to say. So the best laid plans of the Portsmouth Sangha here at our centre, you know, completely swept away in a matter of weeks. Yes, that does sound quite difficult, actually. But also, it does sound good that you are sort of talking to each other at the Portsmouth Buddhist Centre. And just the way you're speaking about the situation, it sounds like you've got a Sangha that's pulling together and also that you are facing up to the financial difficulties that you're encountering. One of the things I've been concerned about talking to different Buddhist centers is that I think this might be common, not just across tree Ratna charities and Buddhist centers, but maybe religious or faith group charities and centers, is that sometimes there can be a tacit view that maybe money is not particularly spiritual. And what can then happen is that organizations have a treasurer-shaped hole. You know, they're sort of led by people who aren't particularly money-minded or um, particularly interested in money or might somehow feel like talking about money isn't particularly spiritual. And that can then lead to all kinds of problems down the line where this sort of crisis, this kind of pandemic crisis, then highlights. And I think if you can get clear about your finances and you are pulling together with each other in a center, in a situation, I think that can bring a lot of confidence. Yeah, we were very lucky in the body of members of our order who run the Ports of Buddha Centre. We were very lucky that one of the people who came along to the centre regularly was a very experienced fundraiser. And actually, we just installed her as the treasurer before all this happened. So it's been really useful, of course, just having this very confident perspective on money. And, you know, someone who's not afraid of that whole area, you know, more than just necessity, actually, there's a, there's a dharmic opportunity there. Well, I'll tell you something I've been thinking about recently in relation to fundraising. Yeah, I've been thinking that quite instinctively, we think that fundraising is about getting money off other people. 
I think that's just instinctively how we think about it. And it's quite natural that we think about it because usually we fundraise when we need some money, like right now. All these triatna centers say, oh my goodness, we need money. Who can ask for money? Right, please give me some money. Yeah. So there's there's this feeling that fundraising is, is about getting what you want from other people. And I, I think that's quite natural and quite instinctive. And for that reason, I can understand why a lot of people, in fact, I felt this way when the crisis first broke, think, well, we can't possibly ask people for money at the moment because there's a crisis going on. You know, they'll be worried about their jobs, their health, their income. You know, we can't ask something of people at a moment like this. Right? I think that's quite a natural response. But what I've realized, partly through advice from more experienced fundraisers than me, non-Buddhists just in the, in the fundraising sector in the UK, and also based actually on my experience last week, which I could tell you about if you like, is that that's not true. <laughs> that even if we see things as it's just about getting something, we're being overly subjective. We're failing to put ourselves in other people's shoes, which of course is core dharma is get out of ourselves, isn't it? Get out, let's get out of ourselves. And actually fundraising what it's really about, certainly when we've got the right mindset, I think the view, the right view, is it's about giving other people an opportunity to solve problems that they really care about. So in that sense, it's not about getting, it's about giving. You're giving people opportunities. Now, that might just sound a bit, what's the word? Is it solipsistic? Maybe not. I don't know, but uh, it might, might sound solipsistic. Actually, I, I think that's absolutely right. I think people in not just the Portsmouth Sangha, although I'm sure you're getting this perspective from your treasurer, but elsewhere, if they found out later that your Sangha, that their Sangha rather, desperately needed money, and didn't ask them, didn't tell them that they desperately needed money, that they were about to close or have to lay people off or whatever, and that they hadn't asked and hadn't told them about that, I think they'd be upset. This isn't just me being, as I say, trying to be an enthusiastic fundraiser. I think they would be upset. You know, if something you care about deeply, imagine if some friends you really love desperately needed money for something important, maybe even an operation or anything, and they never told you, and then they fell ill or whatever happened as a result. I think you'd be upset. You'd say, why didn't you tell me? So I really, I really strongly feel this, that it's almost our duty to keep those people we consider as our close sangha, those regulars, to keep them informed about how we're doing. And if we need money, which almost all centres do, I'm sure, but not almost all of them, we should tell them that and give them that opportunity to give. It's, it's very interesting in the UK to give an example that the National Health Service asked for volunteers. They asked for 250,000 volunteers. A lot of people, 250,000. Within two days, I believe they had 750,000 offers. Now, what does that tell you? That tells you that people want to help. They see it's a crisis and they want to help be part of the solution. Now, not everyone can give money, certainly not if you've just lost your income, but plenty of people can give and want to give. In fact, a lot of people have got more money than usual. If you've got a salary or a pension or whatever you have, you're not spending anything apart from on your rent and food at the moment. You're not going out. Your holidays are cancelled. You're not going to restaurants or cinema. You know, you've actually got more disposable income and you want to use it well because you see there's a crisis and you want to help. So I know I'm being rather passionate here, but I do feel strongly about this. I think people want to help and I think it's kind of our duty to give them that opportunity to help. Just to really echo that, I think lots and lots of people want to help, particularly if you chunk it down to just thinking about your friends. I'm in a Buddhist grouping with another order member, and she's very, very housebound at the moment. She just cannot go out of the house. It will be dangerous for her to go out of the house. And in the UK, we are under lockdown. So you're not really meant to be going out unless it's essential. And she realized that actually it's a gift to somebody else to ask them to go and get her medication for her because it gets them out of the house. It gives them a bike ride. You know, it gives them a little walk to the pharmacy. And 
it brings her joy because somebody's looking after her. And it also brings them not just the joy of looking after her, but also the joy of being able to get out of your house for a little bit. I like that sort of interplay between that very sort of intimate personal side of this, where, yeah, just giving people the opportunity to help just at the level of your friends, your neighbours, the people you you share your life with. And then what you're talking about, Amal, about it's more like a cultural level, isn't it? It's like, how do you instill in any community that cares about how it all goes? How do you instill a culture of generosity that's going to last beyond a point of crisis where all of it is suddenly in focus? I'm sort of aware of that myself, that there's a real opportunity here for any community, but particularly ours, to in a way do a bit of a stock take of like, well, now that everything that's important to us is sharply in focus, how do we want the future to look when this is all over? Vajra Gupta, who's been leading this week's home retreat here on the BuddhaCenter.com, he was talking in his question and answer session about the world. Lewin's just saying he's heard a lot of people talk about how when this is all over, the world will be different and you know, it's going to be great and we won't be able to go back. And he was just cautioning, saying he really hopes that's true, but human beings forget very quickly and they forget what's important and what was important very quickly. And it seems to me there's quite a key role here around things like a culture of giving, a culture of generosity. It will be a service to help people remember what was important. Well, and, and I would say the big part for us to play, for those of us who have responsibility in Buddhist centers, is to sort of remember that in a way that cultural generosity is there, that is in people's hearts, and not to get in the way of that by our own squeamishness about asking. I think that's almost more what we need is the culture of well, asking and in a way educating. There is an education process there because most of us, unless it's explained to us what the costs are you know, involved in the things that we benefit from, we'll just happily take those things. We won't ask necessarily, how was that paid for? Can I help? We do need educating. So I think, yes, culture of generosity. But of course, we've done a lot of work on that. It's the second precept. We talk about generosity a lot. I think it's more for those of us with responsibility, overcoming our own squeamishness about money, which Dani Utah just talked about, and squeamishness about talking about money and indeed about asking for it. I think that's probably one of the big challenges for us. And normally we don't have to do that very much because when you're running a physical Dharma class, a physical Buddhist class, people are there, they see the benefits. You don't have to do a particularly strong appeal. You know, they see the benefits and they're present. When they're not present, believe me, it's a lot, it's a lot, a lot bigger task to fundraise online than it is face to face in a Buddhist center. I mean, if you'll indulge me a second, we did an appeal on our Brixton live stream, our first live stream. We had a huge turnout, 70 people, which is big for us, live. I mean, more later, another couple hundred later, but live, there were 70. Maitri Nara, who did a nice talk about what the Buddha said about illness, and then he did a nice appeal. Guess how much money we got? <laughs> 10 pounds, and that was from a mate of his. <laughs> yeah, 10 pounds of 70 people, and that was from a mate of his. So we've learned a lot in the last two weeks about how to do that, how to make those appeals. And the appeal we did just on Wednesday, just two weeks later, we actually got, I think, five monthly donors worth about, I don't know, over a thousand pounds in the first year and some single gifts as well. So, you know, there is a learning here about how do you fundraise online, but I'm confident that people can undertake that learning, and especially if we share what we learn between us. And that's particularly the idea of the work we want to do support centres. Yes, we all share what we know, but we also want to create a platform whereby each of the centres around our world can share what they're learning about how to give people opportunities to express that generosity towards their sanghas, towards what they value. That's an amazing story, to hear just the difference. And you're an experienced fundraiser, right? And there's a house full of people all quite close to Future Dharma as a project as well. How are you planning between you and with Johan? How are you planning to 
capture some of the new wisdom of this for people who might need it. So beyond financial modelling and helping people navigate the backwaters of government stimulus packages, etc. One of the things that is happening through doing this one-to-one consulting with Buddhist centres is that I think we're learning a lot about how people run their Buddhist centres and we're learning a lot about the culture of Buddhist centres. So it's not just that we're talking to centres where the situation is quite precarious, we're also talking to some centres where the situation is very, very good and um, people feel confident and inspired and that they're actually taking steps almost sort of beyond just running a Buddhist centre. So yesterday I spoke to the chair of Mid-Ethics Buddhist Centre, which is a small sort of Buddhist group outside of London. They're a very, very dynamic community. And what the chair was saying to me was that their sangha has been so generous to them. You know, mostly the the centre is run on regular donations. They hardly have any one-off donations. It's not really that significant. But people give to them regularly and they talk to people very, very honestly on a regular basis about how the centers run. And so they've developed a culture of generosity. And what they're going to do now in this crisis is that they're setting up a hardship fund to help their Sangha members. And I think the lesson that can be drawn out is that if you are well financially governed, if you are doing a good job, you can then also really address suffering directly. And I must say, I I personally came out of that conversation really uplifted and inspired and open-hearted. And I just wanted to keep saying on the call, yes, yes, that's great. We should all be doing this. Yeah. So I just really want to get that story out there. And I've told quite a few people about this now and they just want to sort of keep supporting the chair of Ethics to do this and tell other people about it and hope others feel inspired in this way. It's great to hear that generosity breeds generosity in that sort of way. The is doing well. It can actually start to look differently at how it meets the needs of its, its supporters and people who come along to the Buddhist Centre just beings. And in terms of the support that we can offer centres with their fundraising, on Friday, Kusla Devi is going to launch her first training materials. There's what we're calling a centre fundraising toolkit that will be published on Friday online on the Seeker website. Seeker being the Tree Ratna site for sharing best practice. It's tended to be Dharma teaching, but now it's going to also include fundraising. So there'll be a toolkit, there'll be a survey of the best online giving platforms, a little video from me. So so centre teams could look at that. I'll email all this, all the centre chairs on Friday. So yeah, basically Kusil Davies doing that. We've got a page on the Buddhist Centre Online, a future Dharma page on the Buddhist Centre Online, where any centres, like let's say like Mid-Essex, that are doing really interesting things can share their experience. So it's not that all of the training, so to speak, has to come through future dharma it can be shared just directly between centers like mid-essex with others so yeah those are the two channels our page on the buddhist center online and then the seeker online website and kusa devi i know will be also offering one-to-one zooms like dani tars done and also zoom-based workshops so there's going to be a lot of help there for any true centers anywhere in the world not just the uk we want help with taking a confident and positive fundraising response to this crisis I like how you've brought that back to confidence. I suppose that seems to be one of the key things with this, generosity, breeding generosity, but also just confidence in the Dharma and also confidence in community, the kind of community that we're trying to exemplify in our Buddhist centres around the world. 
And it's good to know in a way that there's so much forethought happening and so much kind of care being put into that. Again, both at that sort of macro institutional level, but also the intimacy of one-on-one calls and what it will take to really pass on that confidence to individuals who can then take that into their local situation, big or small. Really good to hear, quite moving in a way. I'm sure this won't be the last conversation we'll be hearing about money and about fundraising. I'd like to thank you both for just taking the time out of your excellent work to talk to everybody about it today. Amal Abadra, I'm sure... Your work is going to be absolutely crucial in helping establish a future for Chiratna in the post-COVID world that we're all about to enter. Well, thank you, Chandra Dasa, for the invitation to speak today. And I just want to say to anyone listening, be bold and really give people the opportunities to give. I suppose I just want to say something rather directly. If you're out there and you really value this, this Buddhist Centre Online, or if you value a local Sangha, if you have a local Sangha, then do do give because unless we do, unless you do, unless people like you do, it can't continue. How can it continue? It all needs funding. So I just wanted to say that that is something you can definitely do if you are able to give and you do feel this is important. I say whether it's this online work with Buddhist Centre Online, presumably you find that important because you're here and perhaps your local situation if you're lucky enough to have a Buddhist Centre locally, then now's the time to give. Don't leave it and then wish you had later. If you feel the impulse to give, I think it's really important to, to act on it. I wouldn't have expected anything less be bold. And thanks to you too, Danita. Great to hear about the work you've been doing. It's now flowered into something amazing for all beings. Thanks very much for coming today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's nice to have this little conversation with you, Andrew Dasa, and with you, Amla Vajra. I guess if I had one last thing to say is that if you are listening and you are part of a Sangha, a Buddhist community, and you do have any financial skills, I would really encourage you to see if you can find a way to offer those skills to your local center. In situations like this, being able to think clearly about money is definitely, definitely a boon. Yeah, brilliant. That's great, isn't it? Everybody's got something to give. So thanks to our guests today. Thanks for turning up and talking about money. And if you're listening out there, we'll make all those resources available to you as quickly as we can. Hopefully you'll find them useful. Hopefully you'll have been stimulated by this conversation. And if you have something to give, then please follow Dan Utah's advice and just offer it as open-handedly, as open-heartedly as you can. Whatever that looks like, whether it's money, skill, time, patience, whatever it is. And thanks to you for listening as ever. Thanks for taking part in community, which is what this is all about. And we look forward to seeing you again soon. You can continue to follow the home retreat all this week at thebuddhistcentre.com slash toolkit. You can continue to meditate with us every day around the world. Quite amazing the number of people who just show up from all sorts of places and turn on their webcams, smile, and then sit down quietly together. I hope that's one thing that we never go back to is solitary, isolated meditation. So easy to be connected. So yeah, please join us online whenever you can in whatever way you find useful at thebuddhistcentre.com slash toolkit. And we'll see you again tomorrow for another episode of the Daily Toolkit Podcast. Bye for now.